Well, I've got some bad news for people who are, are incompetent. It turns out it's doubly bad in that most incompetent people don't know they are incompetent. As a matter of fact, a researcher, his name's David Dunning of Cornell University, reported that people who are incompetent are more confident of their abilities than competent people. And his associate, uh, Kruger, believes that skills required for competence are the same skills required to recognize that ability. As a matter of fact, they wrote in a journal, not only do incompetent people reach erroneous conclusions and make unfortunate choices, but their incompetence robs them of the ability to realize it. That's not good news. And in reality, this is an excellent picture of the way we are spiritually without Christ. Now, see, you and I, even though we may be born with physical sight, even though we may be born and be able to see physically, every single one of us are spiritually blind. Now, what does that mean? That means we do not see the world and reality the way in which God sees it. It means we see things differently and wrongly. And when people do life without Christ, we should expect them to make bad decisions, see other people and themselves wrongly. You could say incompetently. And what I want to talk about this morning then is how do I gain spiritual sight? How do I gain spiritual sight? How can I live competently by seeing myself and the world with spiritual insight? The passage I want to look at this morning comes from John chapter 9. John chapter 9, we'll start with verses 1 through 12. We'll read those verses. We'll work our way down through the rest of this chapter. That was a very uh, tightly connected chapter. So we'll start out with uh, John chapter 9, verse 1. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground And made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is not is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. You may be seated. 
We're continuing this morning through the book of John. And we sang it this morning so well that Jesus Christ is our living hope. And I just had the thought as we were singing this morning, wouldn't it be wonderful if we just got to the end of one of those songs, all of a sudden we all just disappeared and we're just right together in the presence of God. Hopefully by rapture, but even if John Meteor just hit the church, I don't know, but wouldn't it be better? He is our living hope, and I can offer you no further hope this morning than Jesus Christ. He is our hope. He's our only hope. And this morning I want to talk about this subject of gaining spiritual sight. We see a man, he was born blind, but then as he goes along, as he interacts with Christ, he starts gaining a much different kind of sight in addition to the physical sight. I'd like to approach it this way. First, we'll see that his suffering was used. It's never for no reason Christians suffer. Secondly, we see his faith tested as our faith is tested as well. And finally, we see spiritual sight gained. Spiritual sight gained. That's all what we want is to gain a sense of spiritual sight, although it can get blurry at times. And we'll talk about that. What to do when we get blurry spiritual sight? And what are the warning signs? So last week, we saw Jesus finally addressing the so-called believing Jews. He was at this feast, and, and John takes great pains to show the Jews this is how Jesus fulfills that feast. He's the living water. He's the bread of life. He is the I Am. And we see that some of those Jews accused Jesus of even being demon-possessed. He said that you're not even a Jew. He tells them he existed even before their father Abraham, and they're ready to stone him, but he just sort of slips away. He does that from time to time. He just slips away. And now we get into chapter 9. There's a new debate about who Jesus is, and it starts with a question. This is actually a major point of doctrinal discussion even to this day. What these disciples ask in the very beginning in verses 1 and 2 is he passed by, speaking of Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And listen to the disciples. Rabbi... Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, this is a, a very assumptive kind of a, a question because they're assuming that the root of this man's blindness is sin. Now, they don't know whose sin it was, but it had to have been sin. And this was a commonly held belief at the time that there's a direct connection between the sins of an individual and suffering. And since this man was born blind, he could have committed a sin in the womb or it could have been the sin of his parents. Now, you may be asking, it's a good question. Wait a second. What did, you, did you just say sin in the womb? How do you do that? Well, as it turns out, if a woman were to go and worship in a pagan temple at that time and she was pregnant, that child would be considered worshiping as well in that moment. Now, if you're a pregnant or expecting mother, just think about that. Your child in their eyes would be worshiping with you and what you're doing. Now, this, it's, it's a very old heresy. It's an old, old heresy. As a matter of fact, it gets clear back to the book of Job. And if you know who Job is, you know Job had all kinds of horrible things that happened to him, you know, Health and his family died and his livestock was taken away and he lost his home. And then his so-called friends came up to him and said, Job, there's a really an easy way to make all this stop. Just confess your sin to God and he'll make it all go away. And Job said, well, what sin am I supposed to confess? 
Of course, the corollary to that, the opposite would be, well, if you're not sinning, you should be healthy and wealthy and, and you should be, um, you know, really living the good life materially. And you know what? There's a lot of pastors out there that would make a whole lot more money if they would just preach that. The problem is it's wrong. It is a lie from the pit of hell that you would prosper in any way materially or physically because you're following Christ. As a matter of fact, if you just look at the life of the disciples, you find it just to be the opposite. See, oftentimes following Christ can get you killed. Those disciples of Christ, they didn't live long um, wealthy lives. They lived very short lives and they were very, very painful and, and died in painful ways. Jesus counters their claim in verse 3 and he tells them, look, neither is true. Look in uh, chapter 9, verse 3. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus sees this as an opportunity. It's for divine grace that this man's sin didn't come out of some divine displeasure. And, and we don't know why God brings suffering on some types of people. We don't know why some babies and children are born with certain handicaps. But God brought suffering to this man so that he could glorify himself in the healing. Warren Wearsby said this very well. He said, only God knows why babies are born with handicaps. And only God can turn those handicaps into something that will bring good to the people and glory to his name. Only God knows. We can never assume that someone's physical health and material blessing are because of obedience to God. Sin can bring suffering, but you can't assume that someone is suffering because of their sin. Jesus then performs the healing. He makes a, a mud plaster of saliva and, and soil, and he applies it to the man's eyes, and it's yeah, as many times as I've read this, I'm always kind of struck. This is kind of a gross way to heal somebody. You know, like, can you just snap your fingers or say you're healed or something like that? But no, at this time, they actually thought saliva had medicinal properties. It wasn't uncommon to think that spit could bring healing. So Jesus spit. He makes this mud. He's done this at other times. And then he sends the man to wash in the pool of Siloam. That's the same pool, by the way, that the high priest would go down to seven times on that last day of the Feast of Tabernacles and uh, do that rite of living water. Uh, but in, in this case, he goes down, and notice he does it unquestioningly. Nowhere do you see this man saying, but Jesus, why didn't you come like 10 years ago? Why have I had to go 10 years without sight if it was so easy for you to heal me? But why did you send me to this pool to wash off? He doesn't question anything. Because he's showing his faith in Jesus Christ. He's unquestioningly obeying. So we never know how God uses our suffering. But we can always trust it is not for no reason. He's using our suffering to glorify himself and make you. Uh, one of my hero pastors once said, look, God will often take you to places you don't want to go to make you the person you've always wanted to be. So he uses this man's suffering. He heals him. And this previously blind man shows faith, but that faith is going to be tested. The word of the healing starts to make its way around. And first of all, the neighbors are questioning, well, hold on. How is it that you can suddenly see? I mean, we remember you've been a beggar forever. You've been blind since you were born. Other people say, well, maybe this isn't the same guy. They ask him what happened. And the previously blind man said what well, Jesus told me what to do, I did it, and now I can see. 
Then they take him to the Pharisees, and it says, starting in verse 13, the Pharisees start questioning this man about the healing. But they're primarily, this is, this is how demented this is, they're primarily worried about Jesus breaking the law of the Sabbath. He made mud on the Sabbath. And therefore he sinned. Well, someone who sinned like this, they can't be acting in the power of God. And they, so therefore these Pharisees, they just can't believe the man was born blind. And in verses 18 through 23, the parents of that previously blind man are summoned to come forward and confirm that a miracle was performed. The parents confirm the man was born blind, but they say they, they don't know how it happened, that he can all of a sudden see. As a matter of fact, they said, well, he's of age. Just, just go ahead and ask him. And it's tragic. They should be jumping up and down for joy, but they're not. Why is that? It's because they're afraid. Look at verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Now that, at first glance, may be like, okay, so what? They were put out of the synagogue. We've got to think about what that would mean to them. This would mean they were completely ostracized from their community. That they were cast out. When you were kicked out of the synagogue, that means nobody could talk to you or else, guess what? They too would be kicked out of the synagogue. This means you couldn't do business anymore. And if they talked to you, they couldn't do business either. This is like an honor-shame kind of system. This meant you had to pick up, you had to move, you had to go, you had to live somewhere else and hope that word didn't get to where you were. That's what it meant to be ostracized. By the way, this is what Muslims will often go through when they convert to Christianity. They lose everything. A lot of times they have to move out of their country and pray one of their parents doesn't send a sibling to come kill them. The Pharisees, knowing they can get no further with them, turn their attention to the man who was blind. By the way, that fear of the parents is a sign of spiritual blindness. And the Pharisees acknowledge, okay, well, a miracle has taken place, but, but who's going to get credit for it? And they try to paste Jesus as a sinner. He did a, a work on the Sabbath. But look at the response of the blind man. In verse 25, he said, well, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see he can hang his hat on that. That can't be taken away from him. He can rest in that truth. They continue to question the man who was healed so much. This is one of the best responses in the whole world. Verse 27. He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And listen to this. Do you also want to become his disciples? I think that John probably laughed and giggled to himself a little bit when he wrote that. Oh, maybe that's why they're questioning me so much. No, no, not, not so much. They took great offense. They were incensed, it says, and, at him, and they insulted him. But see, now the lines are drawn. And the Pharisees insist they are disciples of Moses. They're not. If they'd been disciples of Moses, they would be following Jesus and trusting him. But they're not. But they're making a distinction. You're either here with us or you are over here with him. And if you're over here, we're going to make sure that you lose everything. That's the test. 
The story progresses. The identity of Jesus just keeps getting clearer and clearer. In spite of these Pharisees' greatest attempts to marginalize Christ, they're actually verifying who he is. And he's a prophet in verse 17. He's the Christ in verse 22. And finally, he's said to be from God in verse 33. And the Pharisees battle this man healed from blindness. During the discourse, they just do the will of God. That's the way history will end, by the way. All those who say they're opposed to Christ, in the end, will have served him one way or another. And the man born blind is convinced that he's from God. But look at the final response of the Pharisees to that man previously blind. In verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin. And you, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. We saw that fear from his parents of being cast out, but he does not succumb to the fear. You also see the vicious pride of these Pharisees, unteachable, unwilling to recognize the truth. These are all symptoms of the spiritual blindness. They deny his testimony. They kick him out. Now he's an outsider. He's done. This is the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Don't mistake it. And John is telling his audience Consider this to be normal. Normalize what it is that you see this blind man, this previously blind man going through. You will be persecuted. That's the cost of being a follower of Jesus Christ and nothing less. But do you see him growing in his faith? These Pharisees were the spiritual authorities. They were the ones that had their PhDs from seminaries. They were the ones that had all the, they had all the power. They were the most literate, the most educated, and they're trying to bring down this man whose faith is really threatening them. But this is a man standing firm. He's not just growing in physical sight. He's growing in spiritual sight. You see, whether you're in school or whether you're in the workplace, your faith is going to be tested and young people are going to be tested in ways that those of us who are older have never been tested before. A school system is going to tell you that you can choose your gender, that God doesn't do it. But that's not the truth from the Word of God. I can remember years ago, I was in a, it happened in college. It happened whenever I was, started working. I was about 20 years old. And I can remember it was lunchtime and I was sitting uh, there with the guys I worked with, and they were sitting in a semicircle around me, just flinging insults at me, questioning me, laughing at, at me, trying in any way they could to see how stupid it was to be a Christian, to believe the Bible is true, to trust in who Jesus is. And to be honest, I didn't have all the answers. Sometimes you're just going to have to take it. This blind man just had to take it. He actually had some really good answers, but... You're not always going to have the answers. Expect to be misunderstood. But see, that's what makes grown-up Christians. Muscles don't grow unless you apply resistance to them. Your faith doesn't grow unless it's tested, unless you meet resistance to what it is you believe, and you've got to sacrifice something in order to hold true to what you believe. Now you're growing up. Nobody said this was pleasant. As a matter of fact, I think we're promised quite the opposite. 
But he stands firm, and we can do it too. So spiritual sight is gained. Christ reenters the scene, starting at verse 35. The formerly blind man, he's cast out by the men, but look who's waiting. Jesus, right there at the beginning of verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Most important question ever posed to mankind. The most important question you'll ever answer. I'm pointing because I can see it back here. The most important question you'll ever answer is right there in verse 35. Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He needed some more information. Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who may see become, and those who see may become blind. The man's got saving faith in Jesus Christ. He's a disciple of Jesus Christ, but it has cost him. Because, as it said, he was cast out. And Jesus put, took him through these series of questions just to help him process what had happened. He, and he gives him the rest of the story. I'm the one. And what's the result? It results in worship. It's interesting that just prior to this, when he was cast out of synagogue, he was cast out of the place of worship. That's where he would have worshipped. But true worship couldn't happen until he was cast out. You'll be cast out. It's happening more and more. The stakes are getting higher to be a Christian. Worshiping is happening. It doesn't have to happen in a, in a building. It has to be in the presence of Christ, and he's seeing spiritually. Now, how much does this man really know? I mean, it's not like he's taking seminary courses on the Trinity or on sin or on the human condition. No. This goes with what Marcus was saying in the beginning. And I encourage people to grow deeper in what they know about God, but you can worship no matter where you're at. You don't need a seminary education to be a faithful disciple of Christ and to worship Him. He doesn't get a lot of those things, but he fell before. That's what the word worship means. Proscuneo means to lie uh, prostrate on the ground, even kiss the earth in front of the person whom you are worshiping. It's that you are so few. You may clap or cheer for someone that... Uh, that you admire, but this goes way beyond that. You are so filled with awe and honor to that person inside that all you can do is fall down and worship. Only God deserves that kind of honor. It's physically expressing an inward attitude, ascribing worth. That's what worship means, ascribing worth to someone. Look at Christ's response in verse 39. For judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. He's talking to these, these Pharisees. And Jesus' point here is not to say that judgment was the express reason that Christ came, but in bringing grace, exposing sin, and bringing the light, it was unavoidable that some were going to be condemned. And those are the ones who are most confident they were incompetent. They were very confident 
that they were the ones seeing things with clarity. These Pharisees thought they saw it. They thought they understood. But they are blind. The blind man can see both physically and spiritually. But the Pharisees can see physically but are blind spiritually. And look at the last two verses of this chapter, 40 and 41. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to them, said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. These Pharisees are committing willful sin. They should have been the first ones to have recognized Christ. Instead, they're too prideful. They're coming against him. Too arrogant to admit that they are blind sinners. And Jesus didn't just pop into a world of sinners who are ready to confess their own sin. And the majority seems to be rejecting him. The light of Christ exposed these Pharisees. And the mind that was formerly blind. These are the signs of spiritual blindness. It's fear. It's pride. It's anxiety. It's worry. More of a concern about the thoughts of others and what they may do to you than the, the truth of God. And, and what do we do in those moments? I have this. I probably have to, What I'm going to express to you now, I have to do on a daily basis. Okay. Uh, and it's when your spiritual sight gets blurry. So if you think about, you know, when you're driving your car, you've got the dashboard in front of you, and every now and then that, that check engine light will come on, and, and sometimes like, well, let me just ignore it. Maybe it'll go away. Chances are you probably ought to investigate why it's there. When you experience these negative emotions, when you're fearful or you're not accepting instruction or you feel your heart, you're standing against somebody, and you're anxious and you're worried, you need to just figure out what it is is going on. Those are the warning signs. And this is how then we bring life back into focus. How do we bring this spiritual sight back into focus? First of all, I want to suggest you just stop. Pause. Scripture calls it being still. Maybe you need back off of what is it, the, the, the thoughts that are maybe just rolling in your head to the point where you don't feel like you can stop them or the maybe you're feeling crippled by a sense of anxiety. Hit pause. What's going on here? That doesn't mean you empty your head. I don't ever recommend somebody just sort of empty their head and see what pops in there. Anything can pop in there. As a matter of fact, I think you should do just the opposite. Stop and then think. Think. Think about that question that Jesus asked this blind man. The most important question you'll ever be asked in verse 35, do you believe in the Son of Man. Ask yourself that. Okay. What am I believing right now? Can I bring my heart and my focus back to Christ? It's always a better idea to set your thoughts on God himself than some sinful saint or sinful non-saint that's done something really awful to you. The one you're having trouble forgiving. Look to Christ. There was nothing fair about how he was treated. He was perfect. As a matter of fact, a friend of mine, a friend of my wife's, uh, just called her. She's, it's not the first time my wife has gotten, this, gotten into this conversation, but a friend of her just called her out of the blue and said, look, I just have a second. I need you to speak truth to me right now. I'm so hurting and riddled with anxiety. I just need you to speak truth to me. And I remember she was telling me about this. I said, well, what would you say? She said, it was very simple and straightforward. She said to her friend, Jesus died for you. 
you're a child of God, He's in control of all things. Jesus died for you, you're a child of God, He's in control of all things. Man, if you can just think about that, let that occupy your heart and mind. And then finally, worship. Worship. Does it seem strange to worship in great times of distress? But see, this is the natural response when the heart and mind starts with the mind. And I think it gets its way down to the heart. That's where we actually feel stuff. When the heart and mind can get this truth, it is natural and right to start praising God for it. That you did die for us, Lord Jesus. That you were the resurrected. I'm going to spend eternity with you. And right now you're in control of all things. And even the rotten stuff you're using to make me the person you would have me to be. There was a number of people who get this in a way that I do not. And it happens to be right now. There's a a number of Ukrainians um, who didn't think it was strange to worship in a time of war. And a number of Ukrainians have come to the United States uh, and are living here. There's a huge population in New York City. A lot of them have left uh, because they were being um, persecuted by the Russians for their faith. And as as Putin was putting nuclear forces on high alert, many of them took to the streets to protest, but many did not. Many actually went to church. And they gathered in churches. In fact, the majority did. They said to pray and weep, lament. And to sing to God, and they called their praise songs weapons of war. And as the nuclear threat escalated and tensions grew higher, the people in the service were just in disbelief about how quickly things were transpiring, how quickly things had turned around. And and, and one pastor said, our minds uh, fail to understand how is this possible in this day and age. God allowed this to happen, and we do not know why, but we know God is sovereign and He's on His throne He went on to say, there are people who think if they kill someone, they'll accomplish a goal. And a worship leader said, our hope is in the Lord. Listen to this carefully. The one who holds things together. No matter how things fall apart, the Lord created this world. He holds things in his hands. He played music. He led worship in tears. But he also told his church family, even if a nuclear attack happens, the hope we have is we go home. And we, we will be together with Jesus, the one we know will help us. See, this is what it means to gain spiritual sight. This is what it means to start looking at the world the way that God does. And how much worry and anxiety could be assuaged if we could just do this. So choose to stop, think, and worship Christ when your spiritual sight gets blurred. When those warning lights are appearing on the dashboard, make a choice. Hit pause. Stop. Think about who Jesus is. and Stop and think about the truth. And let that turn into worship. I want to close with this story. I was flying out of uh, Seattle. As a matter of fact, I was reading a story about a pastor who had a similar experience. Flying out of a big city. I've, I've noticed it in Seattle. It also happens in San Antonio. When you fly out of those cities you immediately come across these huge mansions. I mean, they're, they're massive. They're 10, 15,000 square foot homes. And, you know, huge pools and garages and gardens. But then the higher you get up in the air, the smaller and smaller these houses become. 
And as you get higher and higher, they start looking like even little playhouses. And one pastor thought about this. He said, it hit me, not a home on this planet looks big to heaven. No house looks huge to God. The things that swell our chests with pride look mighty puny from another perspective. And so he said this prayer. Lord, help me to see this world with your eyes. Otherwise, I might value what you despise and despise what you value. I would say spiritual sight does not come in a moment. I think it comes incrementally over time. And by aligning ourselves with supernatural views, we can keep ourselves from slipping away. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for what you did in this life of this man who was blind, whom you healed, whom you gave sight, but not just physical sight. Lord Jesus, you stayed with him. After his faith was tested, you came to him and you asked him all the right questions. And Lord Jesus, I pray that we would believe in you more and more and that as our faith is tested, we would grow and grow, that we would have an expectation in this world that persecution and testing should be considered normal, not strange, not out of the ordinary, but part of the earthly experience of the pilgrim of God. Impress that upon us in the week to come. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.